please turn your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. We continue to make our way through the epistle of, of 1 John. We looked at the first two verses of this chapter last week, and we're going to look through the verses 3 through 6 this week. And if you're able to, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together. We're looking at verses 3 through 6, but I'm going to read uh, verses 1 and 2 to kind of give us the, the context as we go into verses 3 through 6. So, beginning at verse 1, 1 John chapter 2. My little children, John writes, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You may be seated. May God encourage your heart through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, my prayer for us this morning would be that you would allow us to be obedient to you. We see here the importance of obedience to you, of walking as as your son Jesus walked, and, and give us by your grace the ability to walk that way. We do not have it in and of ourselves. Encourage those who are struggling. For those who have a relationship with you and are are doubting it, give them assurance. For those who do not know you, convict them of their need to trust in your son Jesus alone and and allow them to do so. Father, we we ask by your great mercy. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. There's a box in my basement that is quite possibly the single greatest testimony to God's grace in my life that I possess. It is also, the contents of this box are also the most embarrassing things in my life. And if anything ever happens to Whitney or myself before we are able to burn the contents of this box... Those of you who love us, please, please make sure that happens. In this box are the contents of love letters between Whitney and myself that span, as of next year, they'll span 20 years worth of, of love notes. And the most recent ones are, are not that bad, you know, they're, 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 they're nice, they're good. Love, I don't want to oversell them here, um, but they're, they're good, you know. But there's ones from high school, and oh my, they're terrible. On Friday, for the first time in probably over 15 years, I, I, I pulled out a handful of these letters that we had, and notes that we had written to each other in high school, and they were painful to read. In fact, I took a, a, <laughs> I took a photo of one of them, and I texted it to Whitney, and she responded, ugh. With three G's, so you know she was not a fan. And then, she, and then her second text was, "Burn, baby, burn." 
And I don't think it was like in the sense that you want your wife to say that whenever she's responding to a love letter from you. But I was in agreement. I mean, they're, they're painful. The letters are painful in their immaturity. And, and I don't mean this uh, to, you know, for those of you in high school, I don't mean this condescendingly. And I'm not criticizing you, but they had all the maturity you would expect from letters written between two high school sweethearts. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just read you a couple excerpts, and, and I've edited these, okay? So these aren't even the, the worst parts of them. But uh, So, for example, in uh, fall of 1995, and, and there's a theme to these, and, and the theme is, uh, I am desperate for assurances that this girl likes me. It's, it's pathetic. And so, uh, so, for example, fall of 1995, this is from a little note that I left. I left a lot of notes on her car windshield, and... Uh, this is a note, little note card. It says, hey, Whitney, again, I'm, I'm editing these. Uh, it's too painful otherwise. Uh, hey, I turned in my application to A&M. Uh, call me, Daniel. Fall 1995. Hey, uh, if you have time, why don't you come by my house? I want to talk to you. Fall 95, uh, another note card. Hey, call me when you get home. Also... <laughs> Honk as you go by my house. <laughs> what? <laughs> December tenth, nineteen ninety-five. This is a longer letter. I, I, I pulled again. These, I'm pulling these at random, and I'm, I'm reading through it. I'm like, oh, thank goodness, I'm not begging her to call me. Blah 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 blah. Daniel, P.S. Call me. <laughs> Note from February, uh, February fifth, nineteen ninety-six. Uh, Again, I looked at the end. Okay, there's no P.S. Call me. I'm like, oh, thank goodness. And I look at the, the middle of the page. It's in capital letters are the words as soon. And before as soon as call me as soon as you can. Oh, I, I'm not even referring to that guy as me anymore. That guy from 20 years ago. Now, as I, as I read these letters, what do I see? I see immaturity, right? And it's an immaturity, I think, born out of a high schooler realizing there's no place for this relationship to go right now. There's no commitment that two high schoolers can make that, that, that gives them assurance that this relationship is, is going anywhere or has any sort of permanency to it. And, and that's why I say, based on these letters that I read, um, there should be no relationship between me and Whitney right now. It's a testimony of God's incredible grace in my life that he got us through that time period, right, and allowed us to, to be in relationship. And I kind of feel, I, I've kind of feel, felt guilty sometimes that I, I don't write Whitney as much as I used to, and then I've read the letters, and now I realize the fervency of my letter writing didn't come from a place of maturity. Now, I'm not excusing not writing your wife nice notes, but the fervency of my of my letter writing wasn't because our relationship was so mature, it was because it was so immature, and there's a lack of assurance in that relationship. And, and now, when I, I read the notes that I've written Whitney in the last, uh, you know, 10 years or 15 years, it doesn't say, call me every, you know, every letter. Al- although I did send her a text on Friday after reading these saying, hey, call me, but <laughs> it was, it's okay now. There's an assurance in a mature relationship. There's, there's assurance of, of love, and, and there's security in a healthy relationship that, that the two parties care about each other and are committed to one another. And where that doesn't exist in a relationship, there is a lack 
of health. God, in his word, desires for you to have confidence in your relationship with him. He wants you to know that he loves you. And he wants you to be secure in that knowledge. And when it comes to assurance of a relationship with God, there, there's several mistakes that we can make. One mistake that we can make when it comes to our relationship with God is we can be in relationship with God and doubt it. And that doubting of assurance of relationship with God can cause us not to mature in that relationship as he desires us to mature. And it can cause us not to experience the, the joy in that relationship that God wants us to experience. And the other mistake that we can make when it comes to assurance of our relationship with God is that we can find assurances in the wrong things. We can be confident of our relationship with God and it be a wrong type of confidence. I want us to look together this morning at 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 through 6 and we're going to see what John says about a biblical basis for assurance. And remember, I, I've said as we go through 1 John, these are all about, there's so much in 1 John about the marks of authentic fellowship, of how we know that we truly have fellowship with other believers and we have true fellowship with God. And we see several tests of fellowship. We're, we've talked before about the truth test of fellowship. Do we believe the right things about God that he tells us we have to believe in order to truly be in relationship with him? This morning we're looking at the obedience test. Are we obeying God as he says we need to obey him if we're going to be assured of our relationship with God? And then we're going to look at, in a few weeks, the love test. Are we responding to other believers as God would have us respond? Responding in a way that indicates that our relationship with God and with other believers is genuine. But this morning we're looking at the obedience test. And, and what we're going to see as we look at these verses is that my disobedience or my obedience to God reveals the genuineness of that relationship. It reveals the genuineness, the authenticity of my salvation. My obedience or my disobedience to God says something about the authenticity of my relationship with God, the genuineness of my salvation experience. And what we're going to do is we're going to look, first of all, at an important question and its answer. So look with me, if you would, at verse 3. An important question and its answer in verse 3. And listen to what John writes. And by this... We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Remember what we've said is happening in this epistle, the, the situation in which John is writing. John is ministering in Asia Minor, and there are churches that he is working with. And, and some of these churches have had a schism in them, a, a separation. There's been disunity. Some people have pulled out of these churches and have said, you know, the message that John and, and the other apostles taught was good. It kind of got us started. But now we're on to something better. We now have a, a, a special secret knowledge. And so we're removing ourselves from these guys. We're leaving the church. And, and now we're kind of starting our own thing that 
has some semblance with what they begin, but, but what we know is better than what they know. It's a special secret knowledge. And if you want to live rightly and really know God, follow us. We don't have to believe the things that they believe. The thing, some of the things that they believe are wrong. We don't have to live the way that they tell us to live. You know, these guys are really uptight about all these moral issues, and, and we don't have to worry about that. The truth is, and the special secret knowledge tells us that, that we don't have to live like they told us to live. It doesn't matter how you live because the body and the spirit are separate, and, and it's all about spirit. Who cares what we do in our bodies? And, and the things that they're telling us we have to do relationally, those things aren't true either. So John says, look, by this we know that we have come to know him. And he, he's asking there, there's, there's an implied important question that the people who haven't left the church might be asking. The people who haven't left the church are saying, okay, John, these guys are telling us they have this special secret knowledge. How do we know that they're not right? How do we know that you're right? How do we know that we believe the right things? And if you look at this verse, verse 3, I want you to notice something about how he's wording this first part of the verse. It says, by this we know, in fact, the word know in the English standard version that I'm looking at, the word know occurs twice in your text there. You see that? The first know there in your text there in verse 3, that's in the present tense. He's saying, how do we know presently? Right now, how do I know this right now? He says, By this we know that we have come to know. And that second know is in a tense in the Greek that's called the perfect tense. And the English translates it here, have come to know. That tense describes something that took place in the past, but has effects in the present. So it's it's describing something that took place in the past, but influences me right now. So I might say this, I might say, Last night I was eating a pizza and, man, I'm not feeling all that great this morning, okay? It's something that took place last night, but it's, you know, I'm still feeling the effects of it right now. So how do I know right now that I've come to know Christ in the past? How does my, how do I know that I came to know him in a sense that it's bearing fruit right now in the presence? What John is, what people are asking John and John is talking about is the idea of, of assurance. How can I have certainty that I, that I know God, that I'm in relationship with God? It's a really, really important question, right? How can I know that I've come to know Jesus? And it's a question that many of you have as well. It's an important question because First of all, you see that John has been talking about this idea of sin. He said, okay, the, these guys have a wrong understanding of sin. Here's a right understanding of sin. And the key to dealing with sin is the person of Jesus Christ. And we saw last week he's a, the satisfaction, the propitiation for our sins, not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is the guy who deals with sin. If Jesus hasn't dealt with your sin, you're still in your sin. And so it's a pretty important question. How do I know that I've come to know him? And God, here's the cool thing, God desires for you to know that you're in a relationship with him. Let me read you a couple of verses that I, I think help us understand that God wants us to have assurance. So, for example, Romans 5, 1, Paul is writing about our, our need to have our, our sin dealt with, and he says, 
Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to know when you have peace with him. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God wants you to have assurance. God wants you to know that you're his child. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand aren't those precious promises don't you want those promises in in your life don't you want to know that you're in the hand of of of, of christ that, that, that that no one will ever snatch you out of god's hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand don't you want to know that you're in the father's hand that no one can snatch you out of God's hand. God wants you to know that. God wants you to have that type of assurance. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, Paul says. I have, have confidence of this, that he who begun, began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, we know, brothers, love of God, that he's chosen you. God wants his children to have Assurance. When there's assurance, there's peace, there's security, there, there's a relationship that can, that can flourish. Imagine that you have two children, and both children are, both, both children love you. But one child isn't all that sure you love him and so you know you you leave this child with a babysitter and and you say i'll see you i'll see you in a couple hours and the child says really will you really or you say uh you know you need to eat your vegetables because your vegetables will will help you be big and, and strong and healthy and the child says hmm really or are you trying to poison me Hey, you need to you need to to, to love your brother and, and sister. So it's the best thing for you, is it? Or do you love my brother and sister more than me? And it's a plot to have them triumph over me. I mean, a, a child who doesn't feel secure in his parents' love, there's going to be a, a type of relationship that's not completely healthy, right? Or imagine you have a child, the second child, and this child. Know, knows that they love you, but they also know that, that you love them. And so when you tell them to do things like, like clean their room or eat their vegetables or, hey, I'll see you in a little bit, there, there's confidence they have in that relationship. And as you look at, at, the, at those two different relationships, which one is the relationship in which there can be security and health and peace and maturing? And, and it's the second one, right? God wants your relationship with him to be a relationship in which you experience the fullness of joy of knowing that he loves you and he wants good things for you. God desires for you to have assurance that he loves you. Okay, so how? How can you have this type of assurance? What does the text tell us? Look at verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if... Here's where the assurance comes in. If we keep his commands, his commandments. 
And all the good evangelical Christians said, wait a minute. Something seems off here. This sounds like legalism, Daniel. And you're not going to pull one over on me. I know legalism. And if you're saying I have to obey a bunch of commandments in order to be in a relationship with God, that sounds wrong to me. Here's what John is saying. He's not saying, by this we come into relationship with God if we keep his commandments. He's saying, by this we know that we have a relationship with God if we keep his commandments. See, there's two strands of of, of wrong thinking about the Christian life that, that have been in Christianity since the very beginning, and most of us struggle with, with one of these two extremes. One strand says uh, it's legalism, and, and this strand says, I come into relationship with God by, by doing certain things, or I stay in relationship with God by doing certain things, or I find favor with God by doing certain things. And so uh, I, 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 I sing the right songs, or I listen to the right music, or I, I don't watch the wrong television shows. I do these things. I, I, I you know, have my, my sleeve length a certain length, and I do all these things. And if I, if I do these things, then God will find me acceptable. That's legalism. And I think we, the, the genuine believer rightly recognizes there's something wrong about that. Now, the other extreme is lawlessness. This extreme says, hey, hey, I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved by doing a bunch of works. I'm saved by grace. And so you can't tell me that I've got to live a certain way and have a certain type of, of standard of holiness because I'm under grace. You can't tell me those things not realizing that obedience is an essential characteristic of the genuine believer. You see, so both lawless, there's something wrong. I think the genuine believer realizes there's something off about lawlessness and there's something off about legalism. Both of them are wrong understandings of the Christian life. And what we see here, what we see here is that John is telling us we can have confidence of our relationship with him by keeping his commandments. He's not saying you come into relationship with him by legalism. He's not saying you can just simply live a lawless life. He's saying that there are some things that you should look at in your life that should be true if you've come into relationship with God. Here's maybe a couple of illustrations that might help us get this idea. Uh, let's say that you wake up in the morning and you want to know whether or not it snowed last night. And, and may it be true that this example never happens for a long, long time, many months from now until we see snow on the ground again. But you want to know whether or not it snowed. And so, so what do you do? You, you go out and you look at the ground. And if you see snow on the ground, what's your assumption? Oh, it, it must have snowed. You don't say, ah, there's snow on the ground, and the snow on the ground caused it to snow. That doesn't make any sense. The snow is a result of it snowing. You go to a car, and you say, I wonder if this car has has been in a car accident. And you walk around the car, and you you see a, a big dent on the side, and you say, oh, here's a dent. I guess this car has been in a car accident. The dent didn't cause the accident. The dent is a result of it being in an accident. 
The same is true when it comes to works in the life of a Christian, of obedience in the life of a Christian. We come to our lives and we look at our lives, and if if we see no obedience, we see no desire to be obedient to God, and we we look at our lives and we see a a life characterized by by lawlessness, we say, boy, I, I don't see that this person has really come into relationship with God. And if we do see obedience and and works in our life, we don't say, ah, there's works. Therefore, these works have caused me to be in relationship with God. We say, no, I'm in relationship with God. And out of that relationship has come obedience. Now, I'm sure that statement there clarifies all your questions, right, about obedience and works in the life of the believer. There's probably, I can probably just wrap it up right now because there's no other questions you have about what about this circumstance or what about this circumstance, right? Probably not. In fact, we're going to go to this issue again and again as we go through 1 John. And this morning, we're going to look at two more scenarios that John gives us to help us flush this idea out a little bit more, that both my obedience or my disobedience reveals the genuineness of my salvation. Here's the first scenario. In the first scenario we look at, we learn this. We learn that persistent refusal to obey Christ reveals that I am a liar. A persistent refusal to obey Christ reveals that I am a liar. Let me read what John says and and, and listen to, to his description here. He describes a person, verse 4, who says, I know him. Whoever says, I know him. And so this person, that word know, again, is, is in the, what we call the perfect tense, that, that tense that describes something that took place in the past and is bearing fruit in the present. He's talking about these people who have seceded from the church, who've left the church, and have claimed to have this special knowledge. Whoever, John says, says, I, I, I've come to know him, and yet, he says, doesn't keep his commands. So here's a person who said, I, I've come to know him, and yet as you look at their life, their life is not marked by obedience. In fact, it's, it's marked by, by disobedience. In First John, you know, he's going to tell us things like you have to believe certain things, you need to love God in certain ways, you need to love other Christians in certain ways. And here's a person who, who doesn't do those things. They don't love God, they don't love other people, they don't obey God's commands, they don't believe the right things. They're not being obedient to Jesus. John says, here's a person who says, I've come to know him, and in the present, their life doesn't match that claim. He says the conclusion you draw from that is that they, strong words here, they're a liar. The truth is not in them. As Titus 1.16 says, these people profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So, scenario number one is a person who refuses to obey God. And we see a persistent refusal to obey Christ reveals that I'm a liar. Now, there's a very obvious question, right? A very obvious question that I hope most of us have in our minds right now. If it's true that persistent refusal to obey Christ means that I'm a liar, 
what's the question going on in your mind right now? Okay, Daniel, where's the line here? Because John earlier, what does he say in, in chapter 1? He says, if you say you don't have sin, what are you? You're a liar. But if you say you love Christ and disobey, you're also a liar. So, John, which is it? And I think that as we come to this passage and, and we say, okay, if, if I refuse to obey Christ, then I, I'm a liar. But I, all of us disobey Christ. What, where's the line here? You know, at what point have I refused to obey Christ enough that, that now I can't have any assurance that I'm in a relationship with God and, and I'm, I'm lying to myself and to others? Here's, here's what I think we learn as we go through the rest of 1 John. I think we learn that what John is describing here is not just momentary acts of, of disobedience. He's describing a, a lifestyle of persistent disobedience to God. In fact, I would encourage you this morning that if, if you read what John is writing here, and the idea of being disobedient to God troubles your conscience and, and your heart is troubled by the idea that, that this could be describing you, that is a very good sign. In fact, as I, my, my own heart kind of meditated on this. Okay, I, I thought, okay, John, what are you saying here? What is God saying through you here? What are the, the marks of a person who's in persistent disobedience, has a persistent refusal to be obedient to Christ? And, and, and I thought of about five characteristics of a person who's persistent in their refusal to obey Christ. And, and let me read these and, and, and see if these describe you or, or not. First of all, a person who has a persistent refusal to obey Christ has a hard heart. They have a hard heart. Whenever they think about sin or about God or about God's word, their, their heart is, is very hard to the, the truths that God wishes to communicate to them. Their heart is not soft to spiritual things. Hebrews describes it this way, Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So instead of a soft heart that desires to pursue God, this is a hard heart that, that leads one away from God. Related is a second characteristic of this type of person. It's Another characteristic here is there's a lack of repentance. Hebrews 6, 6 describes a person that it's impossible to renew this person again to repentance. And so a person who is in, in persistent refusal to obey Christ, th this person is going to be confronted with sin. And instead of saying, ah, I agree that that is sin, I want to turn from it, that person is going to, to put up roadblocks between themselves and obedience. You're going to come to this, or person's going to come to me, and they're going to say, hey, Daniel, um, you know, last, last night we were talking, and as, as we were talking, you, you said some, some really uh, just rude things uh, about my hair, and uh, it, 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 it hurt me. And if, if I have a hard heart, it's going to cause me to, to not repent of that. I'm going to say, hey, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You, you're too sensitive. You, you, I'm going to deflect. A person who's in persistent refusal to obey Christ is going to be confronted with their sin, and they're not going to repent, and then they're not going to bear the fruits of repentance. A person who's in persistent refusal to obey Christ is also going to, to lack a desire for God's word. It's another characteristic, a third characteristic. Remember what Jesus said in John 10? We read that just 
a little bit ago, John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you have no desire to come to God's word, no desire to hear what he has to say about how you're to live your life, you have no desire to be obedient to him, it's possible you're not a believer. It's possible you're a liar. If you can come to church and, and, and hear God's word taught and say, man, I have no interest in listening to what God's word says. I have no desire to, to hear God's truth. That should be a grave concern for you. Another characteristic of a person who, who's not a believer is they have no love for other Christians. So if, if you can come to church and you can be around other believers and you can say, you know what? I don't love these people. I don't have a desire to serve them. I have a desire for them to serve me. And because they're not serving me the way that I want to be served, I don't love them. If you can come to church and close your hearts toward the other people who are here, that should be a grave concern for you. That's the characteristic of a person who's in a persistent refusal to obey Christ. We're going to see that in two weeks when we come back to this passage. He's going to talk about the, the essence of being obedient to God is manifested in our love for each other. Then a final characteristic of a person who's persistent in refusal is, is just a, a continued, a continued and ongoing lack of desire to even be obedient. When a person is confronted with God's word and says, look, this is what God's word says, and, and there's not even a, a speaking of the Holy Spirit in their hearts to, to say, look, this is what you need to do. This is who you need to be. That should concern you. If you, as a student, can say, I know what God's word says about how I'm to, to respond to my parents, to my teachers, to my brother or sister. You know what it says, but you don't care. That should concern you. When you know how God's word says you're to treat your husband or your wife and you don't care, that should concern you. What we're describing here, what John is describing here in 1 John, is a person who is persistent in their refusal to obey Christ. And the harsh word is, the harsh word that John uses is that person is a liar. They're lying to themselves and they're lying to other people. And the question that I would encourage you to ask yourself this morning is, am I a liar? Am I a liar? Am I lying to myself or to others about my relationship with God, a relationship with God that, that simply doesn't exist, and the, the, the fact that I'm living in disobedience to God reveals that this relationship doesn't exist? That's scenario one. A persistent refusal to obey Christ reveals I'm a liar. Here's a second scenario. In the second scenario, we see a person who is obedient, and we see that a persistent desire to obey Christ reveals that I, that I am a Christian, that there's a genuineness to my faith. A persistent desire to be obedient to Christ reveals that, that I am a Christian. So here, remember the first person, uh, the 
the first person says, look, I've come to know. In the, in the past, I've come to know Christ, and it's bearing fruit in the, in the present. I have this, this special knowledge of who God is, and yet their life doesn't reflect that. The conclusion is they're, they're lying potentially to themselves and to other people. Now, in this scenario, the person is in relationship with God, and this person, it says, this person keeps the word. And the idea there is that word keeps is in the present tense. Right now, I'm being obedient to God's word. I hear what God tells me to do, and as I hear what God tells me to do, I'm doing that, or I have a desire to do that. It's in the present tense. I'm not saying, hey, when I was three years old, or six years old, or five years old, or ten years old, or twenty years old, sometime in the past, I I did this obedient thing. I prayed this prayer, or I, I signed a card, or I walked down an aisle. We're saying right now, in the present tense, I'm being obedient to God. I'm being sensitive to his word, and I'm trying to keep the things that God has told me to do. The conclusion you reach about that person is different. In him, John says, truly, so it's in contrast to the to the lying in verse 4, in this person, truly, God's love is, is perfected. Uh, the love that... There's, it's kind of ambiguous here. Is it our love for God or God's love for us or, or both? We're going to talk about that more as we go through First John. But in that person, God's love is, is and, and another way to translate it to is, is being perfected. Again, it's that, that perfect tense. It's something that took place in the past, and it's bearing fruit in the present. God's love has been perfected. It, it, God's love kind of began working us in the, in the past, and it's taking place, bearing fruit in the present, right now, right where you're sitting. God's love is, is being perfected in our lives. Now here, I think, is the key to understanding how we can say this. We're not saying, we're not saying that I got saved. Because I got saved, I'm working really, really hard to prove it. God's word teaches us something really important about salvation. Salvation isn't just this this magical formula that you say that makes God have to forgive you. It's not like God says, okay, Christians, I'm going to tell you these, these magic words that you say, and if you say these magic words to you, I won't have a choice but to have to forgive you. So just pray the sinner's prayer. And it's like a a golden ticket to heaven. Stay who you are, but say these magic words, and and I'll save you. Scripture teaches us something much different about what salvation is and and what happens to us at the moment that we're saved. This is really, really important and really cool. In fact, uh, look at at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is in the New Testament after the Gospels and Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians. And then you come to Ephesians. And listen to what Paul tells us in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. He's just talked about how, God, how, how great God is in, in our salvation and, and how he should be blessed. And then he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, And you, you were dead. Not just you were kind of ineffective or you weren't reaching your uh, full potential. Uh, You, spiritually speaking, were dead. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You and I were sinners by, by our very nature, and not only by our nature, but by our choice, by our actions. As sinners, we lived sinfully. We, we did the things that the, the body desired, and so we we acted sinfully. I was a sinner. I was dead in my trespasses and sin, and, and I walked that way. I, I lived that way. And then Paul says in verse 4, something something profound took place, something radical took place. What was it? But God, he says, God divinely intervened. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us, which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places and this is a very important phrase that's going to occur again and again in 1 John. He raised us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I, I was in Christ Jesus now. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's the chronology here. Daniel Bennett dead, spiritually dead. And it doesn't say Daniel Bennett spiritually dead, but Daniel, being really awesome, decided, i got to turn my life around. You know, it says, Daniel, Bennett, dead in trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy, made Daniel alive, made you alive. In Christ. You see, something radical has taken place in the life of the believer. Something, something transformative. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you just sign a card, or you make a decision, or you you pray some prayer. What it means is you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing you're doing. You're placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone, and God is transforming you. Something radical is taking place in your life. You are becoming a new person. So Daniel Bennett dead. God, rich in mercy, raises Daniel, transforms. There's, There's this transformative work that God does. And because we believe there's been a transformative work done in our lives, we mean, we we also believe that something radically different is going to be true of our lives. And if we look at our lives and we see no life, then what is the obvious conclusion we must reach? If there is no life, we must still be dead. Because people who are alive look different than people who are dead. And it's very clear in the text here in Ephesians and in 1 John, there's nothing you do to become alive. And then once you're alive, you can't help but live like you're alive. Not by your works, but by God's continued grace to you as you are in Christ Jesus. Something profound happened at conversion. I'm a radically different person because of God's transformative work in my life. And that that persistent desire to obey Jesus Christ reveals that I've been transformed. It reveals that I'm a Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 
Paul says, for those, it's talking about the security of the believer. And, and oftentimes we use this thing that, you know, I believe in the, I believe in uh, eternal security, a person might say. Well, I believe in eternal security as well, or once saved, always saved, sometimes people say it. But the reason I believe in once saved, always saved, is because I believe in God's transformative work in the life of the believer that is going to continue on into eternity. Again, uh, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. My salvation by God begins in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. And God predestines me and he, and he calls me, he justifies me, and he's going to glorify me. And if right now I can look at my life and see no sign that God has is at work or has ever been at work, that should concern me. My children, uh, when they were born, uh, I didn't feel like there was a lot I could really contribute to their life, you know? Really, the, I've, I've said this before, and it's easier to say when my kids aren't in the room. You know, I love them, but I didn't feel that much of a connection with them sometimes. There, there wasn't a lot I felt like as a dad... I could do. I could hold them, love them. What well, well, that's worth, right? Um, and I, I felt like it was it was hard to get to know my children before before we could really communicate. But what's interesting to me now is, is now that they're older and we have a this, this relationship, and I see their personality. What's interesting to me now is that I can go back. And I can look at old videotapes of, of a three-month-old baby or, you know, six-month or a year-old. And I can look at a, I can look at a videotape of, of six-month-old Noah. And I can see this little smirk on his face. And I can say, oh, I know what he's thinking there. That, that personality that, that he had didn't just suddenly spring up when he turned five years old or something. That, that personality has, has always been there. The same is true in the life of, of a believer. At that moment of, of transformation, we, we become new creatures, and there's something new about us. And it's not fully realized yet, but, but if but we can look and we can say, you know, by God's grace, I, I see, I see that the things in me that, that at root should be there. And, and if I can't see those things, there's something profoundly wrong. A persistent desire to obey Christ reveals that I'm in Christ. Again, going back to 1 John, verse 6, he says, and whoever, or actually, sorry, the last part of verse 5, by this we may know that we are in him. There's that expression, in him again. And whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is true of the Christian life. Works don't save me, but there should be indicators in my life that my life has been transformed. Some of you have very tender consciences. Some of you, as, as I talked this morning about obedience to God, some of you may be struggling. Remember why John 
wrote this. He wrote this not so that believers would doubt God's love for them. He's writing these things so that that believers would know God's love for them. He's not saying that believers should look at their life and see absolute perfection. He's saying, look, a believer should, should come to God's word and say, by God's grace, I see, even though not with perfection yet, but, but I see that God is, is working in my life, and I have a continued desire to see God at work in my life. And as I'm confronted with the reality of my sin, I'm going to respond the way that a Christian must respond. As I see a lack of kindness towards other Christians at, at school or at work, I have a desire to repent of that. I have a desire to be obedient. When it comes to, to church and, and, and God's word and, and, and studying God's word, I have a desire to know him better. And I know that I don't study my Bible perfectly, but, but I want to, and I, and I have a desire to grow in, who, in knowing who God is. When it comes to, to morality and, and, and living my life the way that God has called me to live, I'm not doing it perfectly, but I have a desire to, to grow in that and continue by God's grace. How do you know that you know him? Your obedience or your disobedience to God reveals the genuineness of your salvation. The believer has a persistent desire to be obedient to God and to grow in obedience. And if that is not the condition of your heart this morning, my encouragement to you would be to, today to, to ask God, to reveal, hey, God, is my relationship with you genuine? And, and if it is, if you come to the conclusion it is genuine but, but lacking, say, God, thank you. Thank you for your grace in, in my life for, with passages like 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6 that describe what obedience is to look like and, and give me the grace to grow in obedience through your enabling power. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that. We do ask that you be gracious to us this morning. Allow us to be obedient to you in a way that we cannot be on our own. Help us to be in you through faith in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.